May is Fibromyalgia Awareness Month. It's important to raise awareness about this chronic and often debilitating invisible illness known as fibromyalgia. This month-long campaign is an opportunity to educate people about the symptoms, causes, and treatments of fibromyalgia, as well as to show support for those living with these and other related invisible illnesses. Through increased awareness, we can work towards better understanding and management of fibromyalgia and ultimately improve the quality of life for those who are affected by it. And now on to this week's episode. Welcome back as we continue to hear more about Margaret Mitchell, her life and fibromyalgia and related problems. This week we are going to hear about the curious case of John Marsh, Margaret Mitchell's second husband, who had illnesses that probably fall under the fibromyalgia spectrum as well. I find it very curious if you're a physician like myself, as you may have had patients like this, and you may also have had this yourself or know somebody who has had problems like this and can recognize the similar problems a hundred years later, that the same kind of symptoms persist. And sometimes the same diagnoses are given without any real hope. For those of you who are listening for the first time, I am your host, Dr. Michael Lenz. I am a pediatrician, an internal medicine doctor known as an internist. I also am certified in clinical lipidology and lifestyle medicine. I hope on this podcast to weave the best of both lifestyle medicine and medical management to help those who are going through fibromyalgia and related problems for their loved ones who don't have any problems but want to learn more and for medical providers, physicians who just haven't had much training but are very interested in helping their patients go beyond just learning to live with but to live well, to reduce and sometimes even reverse the levels of fibromyalgia to those who are unaffected. Now, remember that while I am a doctor, I am not your doctor, so all signs and symptoms should be discussed with your physician. So, on to this week's episode. For those of you who have been following along, I have now completed the novel Gone with the Wind. Margaret Mitchell is the author of that. And I have to say that I am extremely impressed. I had gone into reading the novel with relatively low expectations from what I had gathered as a guy. This was a romance novel. And I have to compare this, my own assessment, to the movie Forrest Gump. When it first came out, I had not read anything about it. And when I watched it in the theaters on an afternoon, I was just blown away by the amazement. Both of them are historical fictions. And Margaret Mitchell really did a great job of 
bringing you into the experience of what it was like to live at Scarlett O'Hara and people in her life during the time before, during, and after the Civil War. It seemed there was never a dull moment, and she did a great job with pacing your interest as you read it. And I'm hoping to, in the near future, now watch the movie, which I am guessing will pale compared to how great the book was. Having read in a couple studies that were done and published in the literature that I found a few months ago about Margaret Mitchell's life and how she displayed classic signs and symptoms of fibromyalgia and also ADHD, it made me want to learn more about Margaret Mitchell, which prompted me to read the biography about Margaret Mitchell. Then that prompted me to want to read the book. And knowing Margaret Mitchell's life and knowing what she went through, it was curious now reading the book through the lens of understanding her life and how that reflected itself on her characters. And one of the characters that I was looking at and thought would be important to bring up is that towards the end of the novel, Scarlett describes her oldest child. She wrote, Ella, it really annoyed Scarlett to realize that Ella was a silly child, but she undoubtedly was. She couldn't keep her little mind on one subject longer than a bird could stay on one twig. And even when Scarlett tried to tell stories, Ella went off on childish tangents, interrupting with matters that had nothing to do with the story and forgetting what she had asked long before Scarlett could get the explanation out of her mouth. Margaret went on to describe what Scarlett O'Hara had experienced, and her words describe how many feel the experience of going through a fibromyalgia flare-up is like. She had been forlorn and frightened then, as she was now, weak and pain-wracked and bewildered. She knew she was sicker than they dare tell her, stabbed when she breathed. Her bruised face and head ached, and the whole body was given over to demons who plucked at her with hot pinchers and sawed on her with dull knives and left her for short intervals, so drained that she could not get a grip on herself before they returned. As we go through his story and Margaret's story, I'd love to have you send me an email at drmichaellens at gmail.com with your feedback, with your experiences, and how hearing about Margaret and her husband and what they all went through resonates with what your experiences are during your life. Now, no person is identical and no experiences are the same, but I'm hoping as you hear their stories, you will feel that you are not alone as you go through this battle 
to live better with fibromyalgia. Later on in her life, she married a man named John Marsh. He hardly talked at all, but he was a very polite, real gentleman. And he was devoted to her, too, and waited on her hand and foot. He was just about the slowest, most methodical man who ever lived. When summer comes around, I'll have to drag him off to swim every day, and he is too lazy to go unless pushed, which Margaret groaned in the summer of 1925. The doctor says he doesn't exercise enough. Mostly he looked preoccupied as if he had a slightly sour stomach. This made sense as he was dyspeptic. A strange digestive problems plagued him constantly. Nameless elements sapped his strength all his life, but some of them bore terrifying names, like myocardial infarction. However, long before his massive heart attack, he regularly spent vacations in the hospital between bouts of sick room care at home. In no way did his life resonate more with his beloved than in their fears and feelings and physical health. These shared fears helped bind them strangely together. John Marsh's brother-in-law, which would be Margaret's brother, referred to these illnesses as their shared neuroticisms. John Marsh had received his own war wounds. The trouble with his stomach first appeared in France during the war. This would have been World War I. The food was lousy, Margaret had later thought, and like many other soldiers, it was bad on his digestion. Unlike most of the other victims of lousy food, however, Sergeant Marsh never recovered. He spent weeks in a military hospital in France, but the problem still haunted him seven years after the war. Throughout the 1920s and 30s, John had spent weeks in different veterans' hospitals. He applied for permanent partial disability from the Department of the Army. Although he received a small monthly compensation check until 1933, at least when Franklin Delano Roosevelt's benefits, the government granted him the compensation reluctantly. No one knew what to make of this strange disorder. According to some doctors, the digestive problem somehow became translated into gallstones and kidney stones. The gallstones and kidney stones at least were operable, and the surgeons had their fun with him. Then, however, these ailments transformed with great mysteriousness into epilepsy, supposedly. It was all a very mysterious illness. While his wife admitted that any nervous strain caused his stomach to explode again, stories that this condition was only nervous sent her into tantrums. When this story had circulated into the press, she attacked the source like a hungry hawk on hapless chickens. To be sure that he was ill, had two operations which were directly connected with his war experience, she raged. But I cannot find it possible to think that a gallbladder operation can be classified as shell shock. The angry novelist, who did not even try to explain the connection between her husband's war wounds in 1919 and a gallbladder operation 20 years later. The term shell-shocked was coined by the soldiers themselves. Symptoms included 
fatigue, confusion, nightmares, tremor, impaired sight and hearing, for example. It was diagnosed when no identifiable cause could be identified. It resembles some of what we now refer to as PTSD or post-traumatic stress disorder, and this does occur more often in those who have a history of fibromyalgia. And many who have fibromyalgia have been through a traumatic life event. Stay with us. We'll be right back. I want to briefly interrupt the podcast to inform you about the Fibromyalgia Starter Pack, which is now available. If you are new to this podcast, it categorizes the episodes in a way that it's more beneficial for those new to fibromyalgia. You can access the link in the show notes to learn more. Getting back to the story, he returned to journalism in 1920 and was reading a proofreader at a newspaper in Atlanta. As a man of steady habits, long hours, low energy, and almost narcoleptic need of sleep, he spent his time with his wife talking and listening. Marsha was knowledgeable, intelligent. He loved literature and liked swapping literary ideas and criticism with Margaret. While Margaret worked at the newspaper, much of what she wrote was sent to her husband, who did proofreading and editing of it. His corrections underline her really well and quickly. The young woman had mastered her craft and how little confidence she felt about her talent. Now, connecting to her first husband, Margaret had divorced him, Red Upshaw, culminating with his physical abuse. Her ex-husband, struck her in the left eye with his fist, causing her eyes to swell up and be closed for several days. As a result, Margaret had been confined to her bed for over a month. She had been obliged to give up the work that she had undertaken to support herself and had incurred a large doctor's bill to regain her health. Now, back then, there wasn't health insurance, and if you had to have medical problems, taken care of, they had to be paid out of your own pocket. In September and October of 1923, she produced at least 17 features during that nine-week period. Her star was ascending. However, after April 28th, the pattern changed dramatically. This is when her ex-husband had beaten her. She only wrote four small articles and one review in the following three weeks. After this, she had contributed almost nothing to the paper for nearly three months. After her ex-husband had wrecked her life, she also prepared for his return. She bought a pistol for her bedside table, and according to her brother, she would have delighted in the opportunity to demonstrate her markmanship against her former husband. Margaret's secretary later wrote, All I know is there was a pistol on her bedside table for years. She never explained why. Once when I asked her if she could shoot it, she said, of course. Her mother had taught her or had seen to it that she learned to shoot. Years later, when she found out that her ex-husband Rex had died, the secretary realized that the pistol was no longer there and it had never reappeared. I took the pistol for more than a gesture. I expect she had a reason for it, her secretary had said. 
Her ex-husband was an alcoholic and was in and out of mental institutions for years. Her ex-husband was eccentric, erratic, and violent. No doubt the impact of the trauma inflicted on Margaret lasted for decades until finally her ex-husband had died. Getting back to her second husband, John Marsh, and his story. Poor health had burdened her husband, John Marsh, for years. Margaret began to improve just as the courts took the worry of her ex-husband off her mind. And now as she was getting better health, and the best health she had since her husband John Marsh had known her. However, John Marsh could not say the same about himself. Indeed, for all his apparent satisfaction at securing the object of his affection, Margaret, his body now rebelled. By mere hours, an extraordinary physical breakdown followed his decision to wed. It was undoubtedly one of the most curious affairs in the bizarre health records compiled by the ever-sickly pair. After he had gotten consent to marry from his father-in-law, he developed a curious illness. It wasn't his appendix this time. It was flu, a brand new type, the hiccuping flu. He had hiccups about every other breath he drew for 13 days. He had not been seriously or painfully ill. I don't want you to be worried, but it has interfered with his eating and sleeping, becoming frail. All of the circumstances of the odd malady were extraordinary. Not the least striking, four weeks before the onset of the seizures, also referred to as hiccups, she had written a lengthy article on chronic hiccups. Three weeks after Margaret wrote the article, her husband developed the symptoms. He finally got checked into St. Joseph's Infirmary, the local hospital, where he progressively became weaker. These seizures, as they called them, or hiccups, had destroyed their plans for the wedding. The illness baffled the hospital staff. Besides ordering special diets, the doctors pumped the stomach and finally resorted to surgery. The patient invented remedies of its own. Nothing worked. However, when the physicians offered a psychosomatic explanation, Margaret hit the ceiling. Here she first recorded what was to become standard practice in all of her family's bouts with illness. When a physician offered some disagreeable diagnosis or remedy, she was ever ready to reject that expert as a quack and find a doctor more amenable to her own version of the ailment. These assessments were especially true when the diagnosis even hinted at psychological causes. She had said later, I suppose I took a dislike to him when after poor John had been sick as a dog for a week and unable to sleep or digest anything. This poor ass of a doctor remarked to Kelly Starr, John's boss, that there really wasn't anything wrong with John, except a touch of the nerves. I yearned to swat him for that diagnosis. The explanation of neurosis haunted Margaret. 
She found validation of physiologic sources of the illness where she could. She determined that sleep improved John's condition, supporting her opinion of organic, non-psychological origins. If he can grab just 10 hours of sleep, he looks as if nothing had ever happened to him. And if he misses, he looks like a fatal accident looking for an unhealthy place to happen. However, this proves that, beyond a doubt, his trouble is stomach and not nervous in origin, and that's a comfort, she concluded. I would love to get your feedback from this week's episode as we hear more about both John and Margaret as they go through chronic, invisible diseases and struggles. This story is very common to what I've experienced, and this is a real challenge both for clinicians to help unravel and unpack these symptoms, and also it's how Margaret and many people to this day frame their understanding of these invisible diseases like fibromyalgia and chronic dyspepsia and irritable bowel syndrome, which likely John Marsh was experiencing. There was a clear connection between stress. These seizures of hiccuping seem hardly coincidental to reading an article just weeks earlier about hiccuping and the impact it could have on someone and also occurring at a point of stress. Sometimes we frame this as an either-or. We say that it's a stomach problem or it is a psychological problem. I'd like to refer back to what I talk about in the book as the gut-brain axis. Our intestines are having bidirectional communication constantly. And often when we are under stress, our gut can feel very uncomfortable. And also when we're eating unhealthy, which as we will learn later, John Marsh was definitely eating a very unhealthy diet that also likely contributed to its symptoms. No doubt psychological stress was contributing to her symptoms, but I think what would be so frustrating is what were the paradigms for understanding medical problems. And Fixable problems were problems that could be fixed with surgery. And I want my husband fixed. Don't tell me, despite Margaret's admittedly probably concurrence with the ideas to some degree that the physicians were right, but did not want to concede to that because that also was one of hopelessness. Just saying something is psychological isn't helpful. What we do understand now is that there's a strong neurologic basis for fibromyalgia and these related problems, like in his case, the postprandial dyspepsia and functional pain syndrome and irritable bowel syndrome symptoms that he had. Well, thank you again for joining me as we continue learning more about fibromyalgia and related problems and recognize that John's story is not unique. He is not the only one who has gone through this. And hopefully this will be better understanding for you. If you have fibromyalgia, 
For a loved one who does not have these struggles but wants to understand more about it, and for you medical doctors out there who are trying to learn more about this because I am sure you've had many patients like Margaret and John in your life and you really want to help them but you don't quite understand where they're coming from and you may feel that there is a psychological component but how do we get them help? If you are listening to the podcast and enjoy it, please hit the like or subscribe button. Leave a review if you found it helpful and share this with as many other people so that we can spread this information out to as many people possible to help go beyond just learning to live with, but learning to understand and working towards reducing the symptoms and even reversing symptoms of fibromyalgia. Until next week, go Team Fibro.